Good morning, everybody. Hey, turn to 1 Samuel 15. We have a very important chapter of the Bible to, to examine today. You'll notice that it's only one chapter today, and it's because this chapter is so decisive. We really need to look at it on its own. Now, looking back, uh, of course, we appreciate so much uh, Dick and Todd teaching these past two Thursdays. It's good to be back with you. But if we just re- review for just a minute from whence we've come, you remember that Israel, during the period of the judges, having no king, every man, we're told several times in the book of Judges, did what was right in his own eyes. And so there was, a, there was some moral chaos, some political chaos, and the biggest problem was that Israel didn't have a defense against their enemies, the Philistines in particular, who were very well organized and very well armed. And the Israelites were in tribes, and these little tribes couldn't defend themselves against the nation of Philistia. So they wanted a king, like all the other nations had, who defended themselves so they can muster big armies, and as a national or federal army, they can go against their enemies. Samuel reminded them they already had a king. His name was God. And their request for a king was showing their lack of trust in God. And he stuck to that sermon for a good while until the Lord Himself said, Samuel, let them have their way. Because, of course, in God's overarching plan, He, of course, was planning to provide for us an ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Himself. And in the midst of that, was going to provide for us the kings of Israel even using human sin in order to accomplish his purposes. So Samuel then, of course, relented. And God pointed out to him this tall and handsome and debonair, very competent leader named Saul. And Saul was anointed. And he began to make real progress against the enemies of Israel. And things seemed to be going along fine until you've run into it in chapter 13, of course, where Saul didn't seem to do everything right, and as a matter of fact, he really sinned against the Lord big time by trying to take the office of priest and offer offerings on his own. He dismissed it and discounted it as an insignificant sin, but God didn't, and Samuel already warned him that his kingdom would be coming to an end. But we come to chapter 15 after Saul has made some more progress for Israel. He's, I mean, we would all consider him you know, a good president. You know, a Rooseveltian sort of president who sort of restructures things and gets the nation moving forward. And he, he was a good man from political uh, perspectives. There's no doubt about it. But once again, in chapter 15, we're going to see the final denouement, the final uh, conflict and the kind of final conclusion to Saul's uh, approval as king and Saul's dynasty as uh, God's royal dynasty coming to an end because of something in chapter 15 that we all need to take to heart. And here's the reason. I think we all in our minds have an idea of what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a good man, what it means to be a civil man, what it means to be a righteous man. And we've got kind of our list of sins that we want to avoid and a list of good things that we want to do. And as long as we're doing those, uh, we must have the Lord's favor. And so often we blow off some other sins that uh, uh, Jerry Bridges in his recent book calls respectable sins. And, uh, you know, for example, a respectable sin would be workaholism. That's respectable. Well, you're a really hard worker. Yeah, you're driving your wife and family crazy, 
you know, sinning against them, making a God out of your work, but you get a lot of kudos for being a workaholic. There are other sins like that, very respectable. We dismiss them and discount them. Don't take them seriously. And there's a major fault line in Saul's life underneath all of these successes that he's having. And it comes out in this text. And my prayer is that the fault lines of my life and the fault lines in your life will come out as we study this text so that we're not dismissing or discounting anything in our lives that matters to the Lord. So let's take a look at chapter 15. I think there's a lot for us to learn here. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over His people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have bought Agag, the king, uh, I've, I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, okay, let's look at verses 1 through 11. And notice that God's word must be obeyed. God's word must be obeyed. Beginning with the leaders, verse 1. Beginning with the leaders. Before God uh, addresses the people in general, He almost always will address the leaders. If you're a leader in Sunday school, if you're leading a small group, if you're a pastor, if you're an officer in a church somewhere, let me just say, it all begins with you. And we must obey the word of the Lord in detail. Notice here that uh, the word listen is used in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Therefore, Saul, you are anointed king. Therefore, listen. Shama is the Hebrew word from which we get Samuel. Shema, listen to the Lord. This word Shema is found eight times in this chapter. And of course, in uh, Samuel's great sermon on uh, verses 22 and 23, you find that he says to listen is better than sacrifice. It's the idea of listening to the Lord and doing what you hear and putting it into practice. That's what listening is, spiritual listening. And it begins with the leaders. Listen to the Lord. How do you listen to Him? You read His Word. You contemplate His Word and ask Him to apply that Word to your heart to show you what it means in your life. 
you get consultation and teaching from other people through reading books, going to Amen Bible study, talking with your friends who are mature in Christ. You are listening to the Word of God understood by other people so that you can understand the Word for yourself. You listen very carefully to the Word of God and then you develop a plan to put it into practice because the Lord Jesus taught us that the only Word that we retain is the Word that we put into practice. So we, the, the, the devil comes and takes up the seed if it's not in the soil and germinating. So we have to contemplate the Word and put it into practice. Now we've got the Word. If we don't put it into practice, it'll be gone. And Samuel says, Saul, you were anointed. And of course, every believer in Christ is anointed. We're told that we're the Christians. Christianoe. What are the Christianoe? They're the little Christ. What is a Christ? Uh, Christos means to be anointed, the anointed one. So Christians are the little anointed ones. So the Word of God is saying to us, you've been anointed. You've been set apart. Now listen to the Word of God. That's what you're anointed for. So sometimes leaders like you and me need to be reminded that we are anointed in order to listen. Now B, look at verses 2 and 3 and you'll see we're to listen even when the Word is severe. And boy, is it ever severe here. He says, Saul, I want you to go to the Amalekites. And I don't know, Saul, if you read your Bible recently, but if you check Exodus chapter 17, you'll find that the Amalekites opposed Israel. And this is when Israel They had to hold up the the hands of Moses as they fought the battle against the Amalekites. And in fact, let's just turn back and look at it. Let's look at the statement that was made after the Israelites won that battle. This is on page 173, Exodus 17 at the end of verse 14. Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses after the battle, He said, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So there you have it. Because they opposed Israel, God put a ban on them, a curse on Amalek, and said that curse will remain there and they will be the enemies of God for the generations. And then you notice, uh, turn with me in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20. And some years ago, if you studied Deuteronomy with us, you may remember this section when we studied this idea of total war, of utter destruction. Uh, The Hebrew word is harem. What is harem? It is a total devotion to the Lord, a total destruction of one's enemy. And we'll see why. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, Uh, Where is it? Uh, Okay, look at verse um, uh, verse 16. And here we are told, In the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. Now this is Moses talking to the people of Israel before they go into Canaan. But you shall, verse 17, devote them to complete destruction. There's Haran. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices 
that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So Haram was executed because of the great sin and iniquity of that particular group. And because the Lord wanted them expunged from the land so that they wouldn't corrupt His own people. Now, a haram is, has to be immediately ordered by the Lord. So the Lord Himself calls for it. There is no booty, there is no uh, plunder that the warriors take home to themselves. This is totally devoted to the Lord. So that's the reason you slay everything. You don't win anything out of this. And it is for His glory and it is uh, to affect His vengeance against His and our enemies. It's carried out as God's judgment against a particular people. So when Samuel tells Saul to go against the Amalekites, it is a direct order by the Word of God to exercise God's judgment on the Amalekites with no reward coming to the victors. Those are the three aspects you might remember about a Haram. Now, we don't have those anymore today, do we? Unless you're very confused and you have no New Testament. You have no Jesus Christ. And you have a theonomy, or a theocracy. Here you have a theocracy. The church and the state are one. God is the ultimate king of the state. He orders the state what to do. The state and the church are the same thing. When Jesus comes, He makes it clear that God has His people dispersed through all the states. He doesn't just have one state. He doesn't just have Israel. He doesn't just have the United States of America. He's got all the states. And they're equally uh, uh, His. And He's got His people through all of those states. And the church is His people, but they're scattered into all the states. So we don't exercise warfare as a function of the state against another religious group or another uh, moral uh, group, regardless of how uh, uh, wicked they are, uh, unless it's an act of the state for their violation of the, the law of the state. You with me? Now, Islam has a problem because they have a theocracy. It's a wicked theocracy. It has no sanction from the Bible whatsoever. It's absolutely contrary to the Bible. So they're not hearing from the Lord. When they issue a fatwa against someone, it's, it's demonic. It's not divine ordering. And it's not to exercise God's judgment. It's to, it's to vent their own spleen, their own anger, and their own wickedness. So you can see how wicked it is when we distort the Word of God and try to have holy war or jihad without God's sanction when we don't have a theocracy anymore. Now, when Jesus Christ comes back, He restores the theocracy. Church and state, once again, are one. We'll all fight the battle at the, at the last day on the Lord's side because the theocracy is being restored. Now we're in dispersion. So it's completely inappropriate, reflects a total misunderstanding of God's intentions in this age when someone tries to carry out the will of God by the sword. It's absolutely contrary to the Word of God. But in the Old Testament, we have a theocracy. God is the king of that state. He gives direct orders, and He exercises judgment through His people. Now, as a matter of fact, it, t take with me, t turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 34. I want to show you something, uh, uh, chapter 35, that's very important for us to understand our salvation. Isaiah 35, and that would be page uh, number 1290. Well, make it 1300. 1301. 
Isaiah 35 is speaking about, you, know, you can see the title there of, of the chapter, The Ransom Shall Return. So we're talking about the return of God's people. But look at verse 4 on the next page. This is Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold your God, look at this, will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. And then look at this verse. He will come and save you. You see how these two go together. You can't be saved without God exercising vengeance on His enemies and yours. Salvation in the ultimate sense is to be delivered from all evil and all evildoers. So evildoers either are converted and ultimately glorified into the likeness of Christ so that we're holy saints before Him, or if not, they will be removed from God's kingdom. Ultimately, that's what's going to happen. We're saved by the judgments and the justice of God. If you want a classic illustration, just look at the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. God exercised His judgment on Pharaoh. God exercised His judgment on the Egyptian gods. God exercised His judgment on the Egyptian troops and on the nation of Israel as the firstborn of, I mean, on the nation of Egypt as the firstborn of all Egyptians was taken on the night of Passover. God's judgment delivers God's people. So it may seem a little messy and a little bloody, but gentlemen, this is the result of sin on the face of the earth. And for God to save anybody, He will make a distinction between the evil and the righteous. And He will pass His judgment on the wicked as He promised in the Garden of Eden. That if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And we do. Human beings die because Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're sinners by nature. So here, back to chapter 15, on page 515. God is ordering... Saul, to carry out his judgment. And guess what? So are you. You say, I, just th- I thought you just said we don't use the sword. We don't, we don't do that. Well, you use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in the announcement of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news that a kingdom has come and is coming, and that the king of that kingdom has shown himself, and he's coming back to consummate his kingdom. That's the gospel. It's an announcement of a kingdom. And it warns everybody. When you go warning someone that there's a regime change coming, that's a judgment on the current regime. It's an act of judgment when you announce the gospel. It's inevitable. That's the reason everybody's getting mad at you. Because they sense the judgment. They know that you're saying that what, what is is not right. And they know that you're saying their life needs to change. And they know you're saying that they're sinners and they need to be redeemed. That's an act of judgment to make that statement either explicitly or implicitly. So the announcement of the gospel is also an announcement of God's judgment that is coming. As John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. That's the announcement of the kingdom. So there's a sense in which we have the same commission upon us. And the question is, are you exercising the commission? Are you carrying it out? Are you announcing the warning to the world around us that there's a king, there's a kingdom, and that he's coming to consummate it soon, and he gives a full release to anyone who will repent and turn to him? Well, Saul was given this order not to spare anything, and it seems so so violent, so vicious, 
to kill both man and woman, child and infant. Gentlemen, sin is deep and dark and miserable, and it leads to enormous consequences, even the destruction uh, at the hands of God. And you see it here in this theocracy as God is announcing judgment on a wicked tribe of people. Well, notice C in verses 4 through 9 that this obedience must come with full compliance. It begins with the leaders, even when the word is severe, and it comes with full compliance, not partial compliance. This is where we often make an enormous mistake in our own Christian lives. We'll talk about that. Let's notice, first of all, positively about Saul several things in verses 4 through 8. First of all, he mobilized men. That's no small thing. He gets 210,000 men to fight this battle. That's not easy to do even if you're the king. You have to recruit these valiant men to fight a battle. So look at Saul. He is a faithful warrior in that sense. He's given an order to go to battle, and he goes to battle. When you do that, you run the risk of your own life and the life of these men that you've just recruited. Notice secondly, that he demonstrates kindness to the Kenites. Saul is not trying just to wipe out anybody indiscriminately. He's trying to protect those who are not under the, the, the curse of God. So he warns the Kenites, you might want to clear out. And you see something here about just war theory right here with Saul. That we don't take the lives of non-combatants. That we try to protect the lives of non-combatants. And that's the reason that those from a Judeo-Christian perspective will send flyers down and say, there, there are missiles that are going to come and hit this building. You all get out of there. And that's the reason that American soldiers, you'll see in the Iraqi war, they're at the risk of their own lives. They're carrying wounded Iraqis on their shoulders to get them to the infirmary with gunfire blazing around them. They're rescuing the lives of their enemies. Now, those are combatants. But we have just war. In other words, when we fight a war, it's for a just cause, and we do it in a just way if we're influenced by the Scriptures. You see it with Saul. You folks who are non-combatants who have no dog in this fight, I'm warning you, I'm coming through now. You all clear out and get out of the way. The Kenites had been friends of the Israelites for a number of years, and Paul shows kindness, Saul shows kindness to them. Then notice in verse 7 that Saul defeats the Amalekites. He wins the battle. He executes the war. He wins it. The Amalekites were wicked people. Saul is purging some more wicked people out of the Israelites' lives. That's what, what he was supposed to do as king. So there are many good things that Saul is doing. And then notice in verse 8, he does devote God's enemies to destruction. He takes Agag the king, takes him prisoner, and then he devoted to destruction all the people that were in Amalek. So Saul does a lot of things well, and we have to give him credit for that. But let's look negatively in verse 9. Negatively, Saul spared the leader and his best resources. The best resources of the Amalekites. He spared Agag, Saul, and the people. It was a collaborative effort. Saul and the people spared Agag. We don't know exactly how that happened. Maybe the people said, you know, uh, Agag is a well-trained man. He's got 
years of experience of being king of the Amalekites. Uh, he's got enormous wealth. Uh, he could be useful to us uh, in fighting the Philistines. Let's keep him King Saul. It could have happened that way. And then Saul, yes, indeed, let's do that. You know, from one king to another. After all, we all know that there are risks that you run by being king. And uh, I don't take it personally. Uh, let's, let's spare him. Who knows how it went? Could have gone something like that. But Saul and the people together collaborated to violate the Word of God because God said everything, all the animals, all the people. And Saul thought he could make an exception. Now, who knows why he did this? But I look at how we do things today. And I hear people say things like this. Well, you know... uh, That was first century when the New Testament was written. It was a different culture. They had different issues then. We live in a different world today. And, you know, everything's culturally relative. Well, I could hear Saul say, you know, this harem idea, back in Deuteronomy, I mean, that was 200 years ago. Uh, Things were different. You know, we had a whole land full of people. You had to destroy some people to make room for the Israelites. We live in a different day now. We've got our land. They've got their land. And we have to apply this word differently. So you can imagine all kinds of ways that Saul would have argued in his own head. And I see the same wild imaginations in our own day. And I hear other people say from time to time, and I can hear Saul saying this, well, you know, Samuel did say that, but B-U-T, and I say kick the butts out of here. Uh, because when, as soon as you say, but, yeah, but, you are in trouble. And I I hear people saying that all the time. Well, the Bible says this, but, you know, we've got other ways of knowing things. We've got science, we've got reason, we've got tradition, we've got our own experience. We've got other people who are talking to us. We, you know, we've come a long way. It's a sophisticated society. You know, the Bible was written to unsophisticated people. And so we've learned so much in other fields of endeavor since then. But, 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 as soon as you do that, you're in trouble. That's what Saul did. Yeah, I did, I did everything but Agag and animals. Some of the unblemished animals we kept. So negatively, Saul started to make his own qualifications. Saul started to articulate his own exceptions. And of course, he's the exception. Why? He's the king. He's Saul after all. And Saul means well. Saul has good intentions. Saul has risked his life for the progress of this nation. So why shouldn't he be able to have a few little perks? Why shouldn't he be able to amend the Constitution by himself just a little bit? That happens. When you have power, you begin to see yourself as an exception. You begin to make rules for yourself. Happens in every realm, in business, in the professions, in education, in politics, in church, everybody who has power, tends to do that, make an exception out of themselves. That's what happened. Now, let's go back to the main idea of this section. We're saying that God's Word must be obeyed, beginning with the leaders, even when the Word is severe, with full compliance. D, otherwise, God and prophet grieve. Here's an amazing word. God says, I regret that I've made Saul king. I regret 
that I've anointed him. And look how this wounded Samuel. He was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel was deeply upset at what had happened. Now, we should ask ourselves a question here. Doesn't this reaction by God seem a little like massive overkill? Uh, When you consider what Saul has done, for example, in chapter 11 you studied previously that Saul mustered 330,000 men to save Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. And then we saw that Saul refused to execute his political opponents after that. But he drew everybody together for worship service at Gilgal to renew the kingdom. And then in, uh, in the text that we've already read, he defeated the Philistines at Michmash in chapter 14, he and Jonathan. And he defeated all their enemies. Look at chapter 14, verses 47 and 48. And Saul did a lot of things good. Isn't isn't God nitpicking just a little bit? And, And furthermore, consider this. And I'm sure you've thought of this. Think about Saul's sin of sparing one Amalekite and a few sheep compared to what David did. I mean... David has an affair with Bathsheba and to cover it up, he murders Uriah the Hittite, takes one of his own soldiers' lives because David impregnated his wife. Now, I consider that a really bad sin. I mean, if anybody's going to lose the kingdom, I'd expect that David would have lost it. And if anybody would be forgiven for a misdemeanor, I would expect Saul would have been forgiven for his misdemeanor. Doesn't it seem that way to you? Well, I think that's the reason these next verses are so important for us. Let's figure out what was the problem here. Why is it that David, after his massive sin, is considered a man after God's own heart, and Saul is considered completely rejected after what we might consider a misdemeanor? Let's look and see. In verse 12, well, in verses 12 through 31, we've got to learn that disobedience calls for repentance. This is the issue, gentlemen. So often we think that we're walking with the Lord because we're perfect. And if we're not perfect, we're not walking with the Lord. Wrong. We're walking with the Lord because we're repentant. We keep turning to Him. And that's what keeps you intimate with God, is continual conversion, continual turning to Him in humility and in honest confession and in renewal, gospel renewal. That's what keeps us close. That's what kept David close. Continual repentance from terrible sins, but continual repentance. Saul, on the other hand, commits the misdemeanor, seemingly misdemeanor, but fails to repent. Let's look why. Number one, repentance, true repentance, yields meekness, not monuments. So here in verse 12, after executing the war, knowingly taking exception to God's commandment, Saul goes to Carmel. Now, this is not Mount Carmel. This is Carmel in the south. It's a little village uh, in in the Negev. He goes to Carmel and builds a monument to himself. Great. So now we know what he's really after is his own fame and reputation. And so it's just a complete insensitivity to his having violated the Word of God. 
Secondly, verse 13 and 14, repentance yields sincerity, not spin. What do I mean by that? Well, Saul comes up to Samuel. Notice this. Saul's doing the talking. When you feel guilty, you're going to start to fill the space with other words and shift the paradigm. And you see this on the news all the time. You get CNN or Fox News going at each other. They're just spinning like crazy. They're creating their own paradigms by which to think about the situation in front of you. And that's what Saul's doing. Blessed be the Lord to you, he says. And he goes on to say, uh, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He's not shying away in the bushes, hoping that Samuel doesn't notice. He's aggressively spinning this thing. And Samuel says to him, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. If you could obey the commandment of the Lord, why am I hearing animals over there? You think my mama raised some fool? Uh, you think you pull a wool over my eyes? You think I'm stupid? Uh, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not stupid. And he says, even I can hear these animals. And so repentance involves sincerity. Sincerity is integrity from the inside to the outside. It's not play acting. It's telling the truth. Instead of saying, Samuel, I come to you as a sinner who failed to carry out the dictates of the Lord. What do I do? He says, I've obeyed the Lord. And Samuel has to push back on him. Now look, thirdly, verse 15, repentance yields personal responsibility, not excuse-making and blame-shifting. Look what Saul says in response. Well, you know, these people, they spared the best of the sheep and, and, uh, and and the rest we devoted to destruction. But they, they, they spared it. They did it. So first of all, he blames the people. We already saw Saul and the people did it together. And Saul's going to now shift the blame. Anybody here likely to do that? Oh, yes, we got some good blame shifters in here, beginning with the teacher. So we all tend to blame other people. Then notice what he says. Spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. <laughs> oh, how high-minded of you. You, you, you. Oh, I see what you did, says Samuel. What a lovely notion. What a lovely thing to do for the Lord. You decided to, to spare these animals so that you could worship God. How, how lovely is that? It's, a, it's like, well, you know, the only reason I went to Las Vegas is so I could help with the capital campaign in our church. You know? uh, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the analogy, I think. You know? Well, you know, I, the reason I, I just wanted to help that prostitute feel better about herself today, so that's the reason I had a little relationship with her. You know, it's just excuse-making. It's just a bunch of baloney. It's, it's a pile of manure. He's, and then look thirdly on this. It, he not only blames the people, and then makes this stupid excuse that he wanted to use it for worship. But he, look, he says, the Lord, your God. That's a big key right there. Your God, not my God. Not our God. Your God. Saul's play acting. Saul's in the religion business. Only for purposes of the Saul business. And so God is not my God, it's your God. And I'm cooperating with you because I'm trying to build a political coalition here. I'm trying to create a dynasty and I'm using religion in order to get my way what I really want out there. Saul reveals his heart when he calls the Lord, the Lord your God. And then he tries to make up and say, well, we've devoted the rest to destruction. So fourthly, you see that he tries to give credit to himself. How often 
when you're dealing with someone in business where you have a difference with them and they failed in some way, failed you or failed their job, and you go to them and their first response is, yeah, but you know, I did this and I did that and I did that. I know and I appreciate that. But would you please deal with the issue that's in front of us? And all this giving yourself credit for this, that, and the other, and you do this with your wives. Honey, you failed to take out the trash this morning, which I failed to do on Tuesday morning. That's the reason it's on my mind. And I say, yeah, but do you realize the paycheck I bring home every other week? I mean, that's what we do, isn't it? And, and I, I hear guys doing this. Yeah, my wife's criticizing me. She doesn't realize I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Well, let's talk about the one thing she's got on her mind, okay? How about confession? How about a commitment to change? That would be nice. And then the paycheck that you bring and all this other thing that you do, great. We appreciate that. But don't use the things that you do as a shield to talk about the th- not to talk about the things you don't do. That's what Saul's doing. Hey, we devoted the rest of it to destruction. Look at all those dead animals over there. Look at all those dead people over there. Samuel, what are you complaining about? Look at all those dead things over there. One, one guy's alive and a few sheep and you're complaining. That's kind of how he's dealing with repentance. It's not repentance at all. That's the problem. It's not repentance. It's excuse making and blame shifting. Then notice fourthly in verses 16 through 23, repentance yields full confession, not stonewalling. And Samuel simply says to Saul, stop it. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel then says, look, you were anointed. You were commissioned for this. And you have not obeyed the Lord. And he says in verse 22 and 23 famously, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Don't you realize, Saul, that your worship is your obedience? That that is the greatest sacrifice that you bring to Him? Don't you realize that no matter how large your tithes and offerings are, if God doesn't have your heart, that He hates your tithes and offerings? He doesn't want them. He doesn't even want your songs. He doesn't want your liturgies. He wants your heart. Then your tithes and offerings really make a difference as a symbol of your love for Him. And your songs are an honest expression. And your liturgy is an honest expression of your love for Him. So He wants our hearts. He says, obedient to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And then look at this. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Saul, what you are calling a misdemeanor is a felony. Because when you rebel against the commandments of the Lord and start making exceptions for yourself and start qualifying yourself out of existence... You are like worshiping another god, divination. And he goes on to say that the, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So when you presume that the Lord knows me, He's given me the kingship, He's given me prestige and power and influence, I can now make up my own rules. When you've done that, that's like idolatry. So, Saul, let's put back in priority the things that God has at the top of the list. And that is obedience coming from a real willing and loving heart. And that obedience includes full compliance to the best of your ability. And you say, but pastor, I, I never, I've not had a fully compliant day in my whole life. And I say, well, neither have I. Remember the difference between perfect performance and repentance. So I acknowledge I haven't fully complied, even in the few hours of this day. 
But what I also acknowledge is I'm repenting. I want to comply. I'm seeking with all my heart to turn from my own wickedness continually and continually trust in the Lord for forgiveness and for His Lordship in my life. That's a repentant heart. That's what He's looking for. Repentance yields full confession, not stonewalling. Now look at verses 24 through 31, E, and we see that repentance yields reverence, not image management. And here, briefly, what Saul is basically doing is saying, okay, I sinned. All right, I got it. It's not a sincere thing. He just says, okay, I feared the people more than I feared God. Okay? Okay, Samuel, you got your way. Can we now get back to business? So it's a dismissive way of dealing with his confession. And Samuel sees it right away. And he says, the kingdom has been torn from you. And then Saul says, well, look, okay, great, great, I get it, fine. But just for now, would you go back with me and honor me among the people? Now, this makes perfect sense. If you have a culture or a nation, you don't want the president and Billy Graham to have a public rift that undermines the ability of the president to lead because all these people following Billy Graham are going to think the president's incompetent or morally untrustworthy. So let's go out there and present a united front to the people because remember those Amalekites. Remember those Philistines. Remember you need me to fight those battles. So let's not divide this country. Let's go out there and do it again. And you notice that Samuel goes with him. Samuel is convinced, okay, this is better for Israel. I'll go out there with you. But then notice that unrepentance brings tragic consequences, verses 32 through 35. And image management is not going to get it. The consequences of living an unrepentant life are going to live with us. First of all, verses 32 and 33, God replaces us. Samuel says, okay, I will do the work of the Lord if you're not going to do it. Bring Agag right here. And Agag comes up. Oh, it's the preacher. Wonderful. Well, aren't we happy and aren't we forgiving everybody's sins? Because you, after all, are a preacher. And Samuel starts slicing. <laughs> Yikes. It's ugly. It's dark. The sin is dark. And Samuel had a commandment. And if you're not going to obey it, the Lord will just move you over and He'll just bring somebody else in to do His will. That's exactly what he does with Saul. He displaces him and he replaces him. And the next chapter we'll see he big time replaces him. But Samuel takes Saul's place because God will have his will done. And if you don't want to do it, it's to your own destruction. But God will get it done. Secondly, verses 34 through 35, God's messengers withdraw from us. Here's the great tragedy in Saul's life. As Samuel goes off to Ramah, his home, Saul goes up to his house in Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. These guys are living only 10 miles apart. And they never see each other again. Saul has completely cut himself off through his unrepentance. He is rejected and he's now cut off from the word of the Lord. Starving for lack of the word of the Lord. And when you see his life from here forward, the great craziness and wickedness in his life, the murderous intentions toward good people. You'll see that his life just turns demonic in many ways. He has separated himself from the Word of God. Don't think there are no consequences of that. When you turn your back on the Word and you will not repent, then the Word is withdrawn from you. It's, it's a tragic consequence. And then lastly, verse 35b, God Himself grieves. Now this is 
really interesting here because we're told the Lord regretted that He had made Saul king over Israel. But look with me at verse 29. And Samuel says, The glory of Israel, that would be God, will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So in this one chapter, Samuel says, God is God. He doesn't have regret about anything. And then twice in this chapter we're told, God regretted. How do you put that together? Well, glad you asked. And I don't know, but people smarter than me seem to know, so let me quote them. Here's what Ralph Davis, a commentator on the book of 1 Samuel, a good commentator, by the way. This is what Ralph Davis says. He says, Only in the consistent God of verse 29, that is a consistent God that doesn't repent, doesn't change, doesn't regret, only in the consistent God of verse 29 and the sorrowful God of verse 35 do we find the God who is worthy of praise. Here is a God who is neither fickle in His ways nor indifferent in His responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. And I think that's exactly right. Now I do know, because Ralph Davis taught me, that there's a sense in which God's decrees never change. He never repents of any of His decrees. There's another sense in which in His engagement with people and history, He feels, He does actually grieve over things that are happening among His people. And the greatest reason of all why we would want to live repentant lives is so that we do not grieve the one who made us and redeemed us, who loves us with all of His heart. After what He's done for us, let us not go out and grieve Him as Saul so tragically did. But lastly, not on your outline, but let me just say this. You can't help but notice that chapter 15 is followed by chapter 16. And when the Lord is grieved and has every reason to wipe us out and destroy us, you know what He does? In His kindness, He just takes it to the next good thing He's going to do for us. And it's out of this rejection of an unrepentant king that we get David, who is the forerunner of the king of kings himself. God is working through even our iniquity to bring about His salvation for His people. We don't deserve this. It's it's a ridiculous love story. He's loving us beyond anything that we can imagine. And we'll see that in in uh, full color, living color in chapter 16 next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the amazing story of our redemption that has a bright and radiant side and has a dark side because of our sin. And we pray that You'll help each one of us men this day and in all the days of our lives to manage properly the sin that is so closely tied to us that we may repent of it daily, moment by moment, that we may fully confess, not shifting blame to other people, not making excuses, not trying to uh, cover up with some other good things that we've done, but honestly and sincerely be men who are walking in humility and in repentance before Your face. And Lord, would You be willing to continue Your anointed ministry on our lives? Help us to be the men who are men after Your own heart, And would you be willing to take us even today where we're serving 
and speak through us and live through us and love through us. For we make our prayer in the name of the great King Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.